Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Thursday, October 23rd. From Slate, it's The Gist. So there's this phrase, goo-goo. It means good government or good governance, but it's a great phrase because it communicates the taffy left on the radiator feel of the goal of good governance. Not to denigrate good governance, but we do need an easier way to get there than some of the solutions. So I was reading William Galston, who writes in the Wall Street Journal. He, uh, I think, served in the Clinton administration. He's writing about hunger grows for progress through compromise, quoting a November 4th poll where tied with job creation is the number one issue for the electorate was, quote, breaking the partisan gridlock in Congress to get things done. He finds this heartening because he's part of a group called No Labels. He writes about flying to St. Anselm College in Manchester and hoping that people would come up for this goo-goo, this good governance overhaul of government idea. And even though, quote, we were competing with a number of pumpkin festivals, People flooded in, about 250 people packed the hall for the full 75 minutes. Well, the thing about this, and that's nice, it must have been nice to draw those people away from the pumpkin festivals, but there has to be an easier way to act upon this desire to break the gridlock. And in fact, your elected leaders and would-be elected leaders know this. So I want to quote this part from a debate For the Senate race in Kansas, this is Pat Roberts, incumbent senator. He's in a pretty tight race. We actually quoted his opponent in a mocking way yesterday. I want to quote Pat Roberts talking about ending gridlock. Here you go. It's pretty simple, folks. What this boils down to is a vote for Pat Roberts is a vote for a Republican majority in the Senate. End the Harry Reid agenda. End the gridlock and the Obama-Reed agenda replace what they have stood for with real jobs, real growth. My opponent cannot stand up to the Obama-Reed agenda. After all, he is a Democrat. He ran against me as a Democrat in 2008. And he gave contributions, $174,000, to Hillary Clinton, to Barack Obama, and yes, even Harry Reid. So by deed and by word and by campaign contribution, he cannot stand up to the Reid-Obama agenda. Now, it's just so much more, so more, much more about this election than me. That's why we've had all members of the Republican Party come and endorse me, because they know the number one thing is to get a Republican majority in the United States Senate to end the gridlock Solution one is forget the pumpkin festival, try to overhaul the entire structure of government, or at least how we elect our officials. Mm -hmm. Solution two, hey, vote for me. 
who do you think wins this round? And that is why gridlock will not be overcome. On the show today, I will spiel about the opera The Death of Klinghoffer. It's being protested, picketed, called tantamount to terrorism. And we'll taste a wee dram of whiskey. But first, the psychology of panics. Richard Preston, author of The Hot Zone, says that Ebola terrifies us because, quote, it is the monster without a face. The president has taken blame for poor communication. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, Scott Gottlieb, deputy commissioner of the FDA under George W. Bush and Tevi Troy, a senior aide to George W. Bush, wrote, Much public skepticism about the government's response to Ebola stems from the dogmatic pronouncements of Obama administration officials. In a video message earlier last month on stopping the virus, for example, President Obama asserted, quote, we know how to do it. He was wrong. Well, that sounds fairly indicting. A bungled message is a reason for unrest. But let's listen to what the president actually said in the September public service announcement, not to Americans, but to Africans. Stopping this disease won't be easy, but we know how to do it. You are not alone. Together, we can treat those who are sick with respect and dignity. We can save lives. This was the most egregious misstatement the president's critics could muster, and it came a month before Thomas Eric Duncan became the only person to die in the U.S. of Ebola. Can we blame a bungled government response for our fears? Well, I talked to psychology professor Paul Slovic, who is a founder and president of Decision Research, a nonprofit which studies human judgment, decision-making, and risk analysis. I asked him why Ebola is causing the kind of panic that SARS, H1N1, and MERS didn't, and he said, don't call it a panic. I want to be cautious about accepting the word panicking. Good. I mean, some, That's responsible. some people, some people uh, are quite worried and maybe doing some things that sort of stand out as as a little, you know, unnecessary, uh, like, you know, maybe going out and trying to purchase these hazmat suits, but that's very, very rare. What are the best ways for public officials to be truly reassuring? Well, obviously, you know, they, they can't um, overstate their knowledge and certainty about certain things, which then uh, would make them look foolish or incompetent if, in fact, what they say can't happen actually happens. So to the extent that they, there's uncertainty in their minds, they have to be candid about that uncertainty, uh, be candid about the, you know, the fact that we can control it, but you know, you know, we may not be able to control it perfectly, but we can pretty well keep it limited. So uh, you know, not to lead us to expect perfection, because I don't think perfection will occur. I have thought and I've read some on how all these movies about contagion and outbreak provide some sort of mental map. Like, we know how this thing's going to go, and since most sci-fi is dystopian, the answer is society gets destroyed. We've probably seen 30 movies that start like this, especially in the opening title sequence. And even though we have so many more ways to judge a pandemic that doesn't happen, like everything that's happened till now, is there something to be said for, you know, the effect of uh, fictional media like movies like Outbreak or Planet of the Apes or whatever in terms of uh, driving uh, anxiety among people in real life? Absolutely, because again, this uh, intuitive uh, or gut feeling compass of ours is fed by uh, uh, images and associations and words uh, you know, that convey these kind of strong uh, emotions. Uh, this is, you know, and so that's what comes to mind yeah. uh, when we think, when we hear the word Ebola, that conveys uh, the dread. Right. And, and 
when there's really no experience to back it up, then I think we kind of keep it in perspective. Like if this is about some, you know, aliens from outer space invading, then we, since we we haven't seen that yet, you know, we don't uh, uh, take it that seriously. But when it's a, a disease like this, which is happening now and really causing tremendous uh, problems in certain parts of the world, then we see there's an element of reality to it yes. linked to these images, and that makes it uh, more frightening. Paul Slovak, a founder and president of Decision Research, psychology professor at University of Oregon as well. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. As a consumer, you've probably noticed that there's a dichotomy between how easy something is, how efficient some service is, and how much it costs, right? Like you want to go through that fast line in the airport? Well, it'll cost you. Want to save the whatever it is, hundred something bucks? Then stay on the slow line. Well, this gets to the post office. The post office has so many virtues, like for only less than 50 cents, you can put something in the mail and a guy in California could get in a few days. But it takes so long to wait on those lines and also just to get there when the post office is open. Stamps.com, hate to say it, it's a disruptor. It's disrupting how long those lines are at the post office. And we have an offer for Stamps.com that we'd like to tell you about. It's using the promo code the gist. You would get a $110 bonus offer. You would get a digital scale and you would get up to $55 free postage. And this is good because whatever you could do at the post office, you could do right from your desk with stamps.com, like buy and print official U.S. postage. It's real stamps. You're really printing stamps, but you're doing it on your time, at your pace. So go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. I have cursed, bled, and sworn, jumped bail, and landed up in jail. Life has often tried to stretch me, but the rope always went slack. And now that I have a pile, I go down to the Chelsea. I'll walk on my feet, but I'll leave there on my back. So saith Shane McGowan of the Pogues in a song called Streams of Whiskey. Now, Chelsea is pretty close to the Flatiron District, and it is in the Flatiron where Heather Green is a sommelier, not a wine sommelier, a spirit sommelier. Her book is Whiskey Distilled, A Populist Guide to the Water of Life. And not only is Heather here, she brought some scotch. How you doing, Heather? I'm good. How you doing? So is sommelier the right term that's not wine-specific? It needn't be wine-specific? No, it doesn't need to be wine-specific. And actually, the word sommelier, is, it has an unromantic root to it. It actually is just a fancy word, essentially, for butler. Whiskey comes from, what is the Gaelic word? Water of life. Right. And what is the, how would you say it? Whiskey ba. But I'm terrible at my Gaelic pronunciations. <laughs> Whiskey ba. But, you know, sommelier is really, you know, this was for lack of a better word. And now, I, you know, we kind of joke around about it. Like, should we really call it that? You know, but it is. It's only is a job. It's yeah. somebody who brings goods and, and delicious things from one place to somebody else's mouth. I mean, that's kind of what it what it comes to. So I think that with while on the one hand, it does bother me that we've gotten so precious about every substance that we touch or put in our mouths. I do think with wine, with whiskey, a little bit to a lesser extent with beer, not only does education improve the experience, but it does make sense to know about it because 
while you could say, well, drink what you like, you kind of got to learn what to like. And the more you learn, then I think a greater appreciation you have. And the other thing is, since this really shouldn't be drunken in extremely high quantities, savor the stuff. And if you're going to savor the stuff, you might want to be critical and think about the stuff. The trick with whiskey is to really, really understand your palate, know what you want to drink, have confidence in what you like is okay. So yeah. if you like, you know, some people come in and say, Jack Daniels is crap. I shouldn't drink it. I'm like, if you like Jack Daniels, drink Jack Daniels. There's a time and place for all, all these different brands, you know? So, and I also think an educated consumer is a good one. There is a correlation in general between the price of a spirit or a whiskey or a scotch, but it's not a perfect correlation. And it has been explained to me, well, what you're really paying for in some uh, occasions is branding. How correlated is the price of a whiskey to the quality of a whiskey? Can you get really, really great whiskeys at half the price of other whiskeys or other scotches that they're telling you are the best? There are really beautiful virtues and aromatics that are delivered in young whiskeys. Now, so think about this. You're going to distill your whiskey. You're making your whiskey. You do something called mashing and fermentation and then distillation, which we can get into if you want to get geeky. And then you cask it, right? So over time, the more that whiskey spends in a cask, the more time a whiskey spends in a cask, the more of the notes of that cask are going to start really getting into that whiskey, right? So they fold in. But a younger whiskey will have some of the aromatics uh, more present that have developed during fermentation and mashing and, and distillation. So some of the fruitier, lighter, floral, kind of these estery notes that happen during that process, you're going to taste those more at a younger whiskey than an older one. And now Johnny Walker just mm -hmm. keeps coming out with more colors because, <laughs> and each one is, you know, 30% more expensive than the last. Now, whatever, Johnny Walker, Fuchsia or whatever they're on. Mm -hmm. But is, I'm sure you could taste the difference, but I also know from a marketing standpoint that there is no end to how high end a whiskey could be. And <laughs> if they come out with a $7,000 bottle, there'll be a bunch of Wall Street guys who just got to have the $7,000 bottle because right. it's a $7,000 bottle. Is there a limit to it? I mean, can you really taste, can the average person or even the somewhat trained person really taste the difference between the high end, the extremely high end and the mortgage your house, uh, one third, the <laughs> good gross national product of Brunei high end? Well, the gross national product of Brunei high end, maybe not so much, uh -huh. maybe not so much. But I will tell you that if we had, we don't have Johnny Walker here. Um, but we could do a Johnny Walker tasting. Do you hear that, Johnny Walker? Well, <laughs> we could do that over here. You will taste a difference. You, I promise you, you'll taste a difference between the red and the blue. That's for sure. I mean, sure. So I don't know if you're going to like it better, you know, super mortgage your house whiskeys. You will notice a difference because they tend to be whiskeys that have sat in a cask for a long time. Mm -hmm. So once you get to know what that means and what kinds of aromatics happen over time because of the effects from of the cask, you'll, you'll notice a difference. The question now is whether you like it or not. And that's very subjective. Yes. And the best way to do that, and I love doing this, is blind tastings. Taste it blind. That's the best way to know whether or not you really like it. And, and I, I love doing blind tastings. And I will add that any whiskey can be a mortgage or house whiskey if you drink enough of it. That <laughs> is absolutely true. You have Whiskey's 40% ABV, so look, you got to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's be careful. Let's be careful with the <laughs> whiskeys you, you brought for me. Yeah, I want to start with something more, a little bit more kind of um, fragrant, fruity, floral, very approachable, and something I do throw on ice in the summertime and the spring. This is an Irish whiskey called Tullamore Dew, triple distilled. Now, now all, not all Irish whiskeys are triple distilled. People think that. This one does happen to be triple distilled, but that is an Irish. So not a huge flavor. 
Not the the notes. Am I not? So I'm oh. giving you a bourbon. Okay. Okay. So a first, Kentucky straight bourbon so whiskey. First, you would like me to drink the. I want you to double fist it. I don't want you to drink them. I just want you to smell them. Okay. Okay. So, I want you to take the Irish whiskey. I want you to get some of the. It's more. I would say softer. Mm-hmm. Approachable, maybe some people would use. Maybe no, as you say, don't stick your nose right in the whiskey. You'll, you You'll need a half burned. hour to recover. You will. It's not like wine. Wine, you could stick that nose right in there. Sometimes. Yeah, you don't want to burn your olfactory nerves. That's right. Okay, I got that. Now there's a difference there. Oh yeah. Okay, that's the best way to really understand the difference. Is Smell that... one. Smell the other. Here, yeah. this is the audio of me smelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Irish whiskey puts mm-hmm. me in the mind of. Um, a literary uh, mindset. <laughs> you feeling very Hemingway with yeah, that, about well, that? Well, you know, Joycean, I definitely okay. want Joycean, to. Joycean, okay, not mm-hmm. Irish-American. I, wa- I want to go stream of conscious with this, whereas the bourbon, slide guitar. I'm, I'm smelling you slide guitar. Little, uh, yeah, Bonnie yeah. Raitt, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, now I've smelled it. What happens okay. next? Okay, so now you've smelled it. What you're doing is these little aromatic molecules went up into your nose. They attach it to your receptors, and hopefully they sent a little message to your brain that yeah. said something like, if you were, well, for you it said James Joyce, right? Yeah. Okay. This one did, sure. I did a tasting for a whiskey magazine once, mm-hmm. and I said that that whiskey reminded me of tasting paper because hmm. I loved that flavor and smell in first grade. <laughs> So maybe you're on to something. Maybe. <laughs> Wood or paper or freshness. There's a freshness there. Yes. You know like what paper smells like kind of fresh? Well, Am I crazy? It fr- does, no, right? I like right. that smell. And also my first grade teacher stunk of whiskey. So it brings oh back that God. memory. You were you, you weren't reading James Joyce in first grade, were <laughs> no, you? No. Well you're a brainiac. Okay, so that's the Telemordeo. I love that whiskey. It's really beautiful. And now I wanted you to pay attention to the aromatics. Mm-hmm. Next, we're going to taste it, and we're going to look at how the whiskey bounces around your mouth. Okay. And we want to think about the finish. Okay. Right. A finish is how long does it last in the back of your palate or down your throat. Sometimes you want a nice, short, quick one, and mm-hmm. sometimes you want it to last all night. Right? Yep. Okay. So have a taste of your Telemordeo. Now taste your bourbon back to back. Because I just want you to, some people say, again, this is an irreverent way to do a tasting according to uh, many fundamentalists, but not according to science. This is the best way you'll get at the maximum amount of flavors between the two of them. Okay. Okay. I think. Bourbon's hanging around like a brother-in-law on my couch. I like that bourbon. Yeah, no, it's there for a while. Maybe I like the guy. We're going to watch football oh, okay, together on okay. Saturday. That wasn't what I was thinking when I thought something that lasted all night, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how many bourbons. Oh, fair enough. Okay, so. It's really good. That's really good. Yeah. Okay, so I love that whiskey. There's a richness there. Mm-hmm. In order to be called a bourbon, you must be made, your grain must yeah. be made with at least 51% corn. You must be aged in brand new, as I said, virgin charred oak. What this particular whiskey did is after it met all those rules and did that, they finished it in a port pipe, which is a type of cask, to give it a nice, beautiful um, kind of richness to it. And that's called Angel's Envy. So awesome. That's, that's a nice whiskey. That does, does it have to be from Kentucky? Now, I think of Kentucky as sort of the spiritual homeland of bourbon. I think many people do, and great whiskeys come out of Kentucky, but it doesn't mean that it can't come from somewhere else or great whiskeys. Don't we have great whiskeys all over the United States now? Gotcha. All right. What else do we have on okay. the agenda? Um, 
This is a whiskey from France. Ah. Um, so this is a, of course, it's a whiskey, So and it is from France, so we're not talking cognac or armagnac. We're talking about a whiskey, so water, yeast, and grain, and this happens to be barley. But this barley was grown next to cognac grapes, and this whiskey is aged in old cognac barrels. So you now get to see the true effects of mm. what someone might say is terroir on the on a whiskey. What's terroir mean? Terroir is basically effects of the environment on on. Is terra earth? Is terra as an earth. I want you to notice how this is called Bren, B R E N N. Very floral. It's floral, banana, floral. sweet, raisiny. Yes, that's right. It's like uh, I should be having grape nuts with this. It's really, it's a very, very interesting whiskey, really beautiful. A lot of people are introduced to whiskey by something like this because of that sweetness. So now you see, you've tasted whiskeys back to back. You can really kind of understand what we're looking for with scotch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if I was going to go for a bourbon, I don't know if I'd go for Angel's Envy. Okay. But you know what? It's good. I could see that it was uh, going where it wanted to. And uh, Tullamore Dew, absolutely. Hot it day, sounds to some me ice. that you're of much more of uh, your palate, and it's yeah. totally reasonable. You are more of a, a scotch, par- you're barley-based, yeah. Yeah. Um, used cask kind of guy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I have one liquor, and that's scotch. And I try a different used, one every time. And you are Well, your point. palate's very used to it. So yeah. if we had 20 people in here, there'd mm-hmm. probably be five that say what you say, five that want the bourbon. It's really, we bring so much of our own biology, our culture yep. to the table, what we grew up with. Did we listen to Tex Ritter or read James Joyce? <laughs> you know, like all these things come into play when we drink a whiskey. And for you, you've discovered doing back-to-back with all these different styles that you really like scotch style. Heather Green is the sommelier at the Flatiron Room. Her book is Whiskey Distilled, A Populist Guide to the Water of Life. She's trying as hard as she can to get me drunk today. Thank you, Heather. (laughs) Thank you. And now the spiel, opera and insult. What you are hearing is a selection from The Death of Klinghoffer, now playing at New York City's Metropolitan Opera House. A terrorist nicknamed Rambo aboard the Italian cruise ship, the Achille Loro, is waving his gun and pointing at terrified passengers, among them Leon Klinghoffer, who in the show, as in real life, would come to die at the terrorist's hands. Klinghoffer used a wheelchair and was partially paralyzed. Here Rambo is saying, Wherever poor men are gathered, they could find Jews getting fat. You know how to cheat the simple, exploit the virgin, pollute where you have exploited, defame those you cheat, and break your own law with idolatry. America is one big Jew. The words are the invention of librettist Alice Goodman, but the events actually transpired. The words that are now transpiring, that's too passive. The words that are now being slung as weapons on behalf of protesters and defenders of the opera are so emotional that complex issues are being ignored. The opera has been assailed by critics as anti-Semitic. Palestinian terrorist concerns are given weight. The production starts with the chorus of exiled Palestinians, turning the story of a terrorist murder into the story of an historic struggle. 
Individual lines have been plucked out by protesters. America is one big Jew, and cited as evidence of anti-Semitism. Clearly, that is hard to do with one line. A character's hatred of Jews isn't de facto proof that an entire production is anti-Semitic. But the controversy surrounding the show is an example of this phenomenon, where it's very easy to dismiss the worst arguments that are being made. And often the worst arguments are the most prominent arguments. So I'd like to take this example of speech, controversy, and artists' obligation to victims, accuracy, and discourse, and get past the worst arguments and into the weedier places that make this interesting. Among the hundreds of protesters outside the Met was opera fan Rudy Giuliani, who said, The Metropolitan Opera has the First Amendment right to put on this opera. I have the First Amendment right. Having now studied the opera, I'm not someone ignorant of the opera. I know it in detail. Someone having studied the opera, I've come to the conclusion that the opera is historically inaccurate, extremely dangerous, very bad, and I'm protesting. I have a right to that opinion. This is the first level of argument in cases like these. I think speakers make this point, well, maybe because there's some in the audience who need clarification, who don't know that no one is actually calling for anyone to be arrested or for the government to step in, I guess. I think speakers make this point about the right they have and exercising a right because the exercise of rights, that's generally civically celebrated. It associates oneself with the moral high ground. It perhaps also obfuscates the issue. The issue here is the choice the Met made in mounting this work. Academic and opera fan Walter Russell Mead, writing in The American Interest, says he saw the show, didn't much like it, and while he's, quote, not of the boycotting persuasion, he found a real problem in that Leon Klinghoffer wasn't a public figure. He said, nothing gave John Adams, the composer, and Goodman a moral right to profit from his death or to use it for political or artistic purposes without permission of his loved ones. I don't dismiss this argument. Klinghoffer's daughters object to this show. But what if his daughters thought differently? What if their attitude was, we find this opera odious, but since we believe in artistic expression, we merely welcome you to find it odious too. The librettist, Alice Goodman, argues that she didn't want the daughter's input in her work. Quote, They had already been consultants for two docudramas. One starred Carl Malden, the other Burt Lancaster, she continues. So it seemed to me they didn't really need a third. Also, having been advisors on these docudramas, they couldn't really say this is all a private family matter because it has become part of the public discourse. I do not buy that argument. This is like arguing, well, since you offered some remembrances to the man who gave a eulogy for your dead father, you can't possibly object when another party engages in calumny against your father. By the way, I've seen the Burt Lancaster docudrama. It's little of either docu or drama. It basically depicts Leon Klinghoffer as Burt Lancaster, who occasionally says L'Chaim. Here, Lancaster is playfully berating a cruise ship employee who is wheeling him through the ship. What's your name, son? Antonio. Antonio, huh? Antonio, you drive too damn fast. You have no respect for stop sign, and you go right through red lights. What's your name, son? Antonio. Antonio, huh? Antonio, you drive too damn fast. You have no respect for stop sign, and you go right through red lights. You're like all Italians. But you're one hell of a driver. Thank you, sir.
Now back to Alice Goodman, who wrote the libretto. She was born into a Jewish family, converted to Christianity, is now a rector in the Church of England. Interestingly, and I haven't seen this noted anywhere in the American media, even though she claims that after writing The Death of Klinghoffer, she became uncommissionable and it drove her from writing librettos, she actually did collaborate or attempt to collaborate with composer John Adams once more. But she withdrew from the project about Robert Oppenheimer. She told the London Guardian, quote, I found that the structure was really anti-Semitic, with Oppenheimer as the good blue-eyed Jew and Edward Teller as the bad limping one with the greasy hair. Adams said that, quote, her preposterous reason for not being able to deliver a libretto strikes me as speaking more about her own private preoccupations than about the reality of the Oppenheimer story. I don't know what to make of that. That's a hard one. And it is easier to deal with the easier arguments. That's my theme here. Like, let's talk about a couple easy arguments. There were two signs that were affixed to podiums that protesters, including rabbis and former Mayor Giuliani, spoke from. Those signs read, the Met glorified terrorism and... This opera justifies attacks on America, Israel, Jews. That's preposterous. That's overblown. That's simplistic. And that word also applies to Alice Goodman and John Adams when they describe their motivations as to humanize. Here's Goodman. To have made Klinghoffer into the Klinghoffer the critics wanted would have been to play into that enterprise of dehumanizing, dehumanizing the enemy, dehumanizing your friends as well. What she means by humanizing or dehumanizing is explaining, if not excusing, the motivations or imagined motivations of the hijackers. There is nothing wrong with that. A lot could be right about that. It depends on how it's done. But the territory is more complex than to merely defend the goal of dehumanizing as justification for whatever you write in your work of art. This gets back to my point about the worst arguments. If this were a showdown between censorious forces against uncomfortable art on one hand, and a show that sheds light, insight, and perspective on a fraught situation in a novel way, that'd be one thing. But having read the libretto, having not seen the Mets version, but watched a 2003 film made of the opera, I have to say that's an unfair characterization. Because I think the arguments made in The Death of Klinghoffer, to the extent that they are cogent arguments, are pretty banal. Let me quote from the Washington Post critic Anne Majette. It throws out a lot of ideas and takes refuge behind the mantle of art to avoid actually thinking them through. I agree. The musicality of the show might make it exceptional. I don't know. I'm out of my depth there. The fact that an opera dared concern itself with current events, I applaud that, but it's not enough. This show shouldn't be banned. It shouldn't be shunned. But it shouldn't be praised as really brave or particularly illuminating. It's a work of art but not a very compelling one on a dramatic level. If you're of a mind to speak out against it, I won't tell you not to, but I somehow think casting it as a trifle rather than as an unconscionable slander will sooner bring about the death of the death of Klinghoffer. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the Gist's producer, has a woody, almost toasted note, redolent of rice pudding and sandalwood. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is PD beyond belief, seashells, bog myrtle, and an overall feel of moss. Joel Meyer, managing producer of podcasts, is hay-like and fragrant, like a barbershop, but instead of hair on the floor, it's hay, mown hay. You subscribe on iTunes, give us a listen in Stitcher. Our daily email is available at slate.com slash just email. Download the app Yo and sign up for podcast. We'll tell you when the show's ready. I want to plug Facebook. Facebook 
uh, has a lot, it's a repository of a lot of the conversation going on around the gist. And I've just posted a film, a short film, in the We the Economy series. Its director is Barbara Koppel. She's won two Academy Awards, Harlan County, USA. Adam Davidson and I are kind of, I'm not going to say centerpieces. We're, we're in the film a lot. Go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. I contain notes of sulfur from cordite to burnt rubber mixed with a tangerine zest stewed apples. And is that figs? No, it's raisins. Now, I should say I don't drink whiskey, but I do take steam baths with demonic fruit merchants. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gap Fest, you will need to show a form of ID, government-issued ID, to listen to the show. It's the voter ID episode. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.